Hello, welcome to Stars, Cells, and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological and philosophical implications, as well as discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name is Jeff Zwerink. I'll be your guide today as we talk about brain development and exoplanets. But before we get into the discussion, I want to encourage you to subscribe to our channel, Reasons to Believe, so that you can be notified of our new weekly videos. Learn more at reasons.org are by following us on social media at rtb underscore official. Today I'm joined with Fuzz. Fuzz, good to have you here today. Jeff. I'm going to let you start off the discussion talking about brain development. So what do we have in tap today? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, Jeff, uh, to set the stage, there are all these adages, you know, that people throw around. Some of them are helpful. Some of them maybe not so much. But one adage that's applicable to, to today's discovery is this idea that good things take time. Hmm. And, uh, you know, that's definitely true when it comes to whiskey, by the way. Now, I don't drink. Uh, I, I'd imagine you don't drink. I've had occasional things. There's part of me that doesn't quite understand why people drink this stuff because it hurts when you first start drinking it. Yeah. Well, I don't drink, uh, but uh, good whiskey takes time. Right. And, uh, you know, in fact, you can make whiskey in about a week. Uh, just the, the process of fermenting the grains and then distilling mm-hmm. The alcohol from the grains, you could do that in a week's time. But if you want really fine whiskey, you have to age the whiskey, usually in barrels. And as a chemist, I find the the whole chemistry of the aging Mm -hmm. process to be fascinating, you know, because uh, three years seems to be the the window of time for at least an acceptable whiskey. And it depends upon the, the, the oak barrel, where you get the oak from, how you treat the oak. And so there's a real art and a science to, you know, to aging whiskey. And what happens is during the aging process, the walls of the barrel will absorb impurities in the alcohol, high molecular mm. weight materials, which actually improve the flavor, improve the smoothness. There's a little bit of evaporation of the alcohol that takes some of the the edge off the whiskey. Okay. And then there's materials in the oak barrel that infuse into the whiskey and give it its color and, and give it its distinct flavor. And so it's a fascinating, fascinating aging process. And 25 well, so, years so, is, is the like the, 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 the optimum time for the best whiskey. Really? 25 years? So, so I'm gathering... Is that you, you made it sound like there are things that diffuse from the uh, barrel into the into the whiskey from the whiskey into the barrel. Is that more just physical, like adding salt to something, or are there chemical changing of the actual physical molecules? There? It's probably some just leaching and diffusion, diffusion and absorption. Okay. Uh, but there may be some chemical processes that are taking place as well. All right. So there's a whole science to to the aging process of whiskey that's you know very interesting chemistry, but. Uh, another place where good things take time has to do with brain development and specifically the, the cellular processes that take place in progenitor cells and neural cells that are uh, playing a role in the development of something called the neocortex. And it turns out that those cellular processes take longer in the developing modern human brain than they would have taken place in the brains of Neanderthals. And, and mm-hmm. this is a, an insight that was made available by a team of German researchers who published a paper recently in in the journal Science as part of the Science Advance, Advances feature. 
But this is uh, part of a larger project among anthropologists to try to understand what makes us unique, if, if anything, as human beings. And, you know, part of that process involves comparing, you know, our anatomical features with those of Neanderthals and the other hominins. But thanks to um, this whole industry of ancient DNA studies now, people can actually, uh, we've been able to sequence the, the Neanderthal genome, the genomes of, of Denisovans. We have high quality sequences available and we can then compare gene sequences of the Neanderthal genome with that of uh, modern humans. And uh, how much of the Neanderthal and Denisovan DNA do we have? Do we have something equivalent to what we have in humans? Because I don't yeah. think we have the human genome entirely yeah, sequenced. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, and that's right. We don't have the entire sequence of okay. the human genome. Uh, we have, you know, probably close to, I would think, about 90 to 95 percent now. Okay. And, and it would be comparable with, okay. with the right. Neanderthal in the Denisovan genomes. And we ha also have high-quality sequences, meaning that the sequence, ha uh, the genome has been sequenced multiple times. Okay. And so, um, you know, every time you sequence the genome, you, uh, you know, you, you actually improve the quality of the sequence because, you know, if you sequence a genome 10 times, if there's a, a couple of errors that took place in the sequencing, the, you will be able to detect them the more times you sequence it. How does that impact, um, you know, so if you were to take a DNA from a single person, I can see where you're going to get errors in sequencing and you want to get that genome. But there are differences from person to person. I assume that plays into sequencing for uh, Neanderthals and Denisovans as well. Right. It, it, and and it, it does. And, you know, part of the, the human genome uh, pro, uh, program or sequencing program is to assess diversity of the human genome. Mm -hmm. You can't quite do that with Neanderthals and Denisovans, but we do have multiple genomes from multiple specimens. Okay, so you're not getting just one. There is right. some measure of that diversity as well as being right. able to pair and, out and, the And there you're now looking at you know, uh, specimens from different locations as well as specimens that lived at different times. Right, okay. So your, diver your, your genetic diversity is a snapshot from population and time. Right. So it it it's a good it's a good assessment of diversity, uh, you know. Even though it's not the the numbers aren't that that high. Right. Gotcha. But people have looked at um, the differences in the human and Neanderthal genomes for the protein coding uh, genes. So there's about you know nineteen twenty thousand genes that are encoded in both sets of genomes, and have found only a hundred. Uh, positional differences in those in those hmm. proteins, but the question is: Are those a hundred differences significant? And so now there's a project underway to to actually experimentally assess, you know, what those what those differences entail. So, so those differences are like different letters mm -hmm. in the genetic code that so, impact what right. sort of proteins so, are yeah, made? So the gene that codes for a, a particular protein may have one amino acid that's different in the human genome compared to that of Neanderthals. Okay, all right. And, and so th th that then becomes the basis for trying to make an assessment. And in the in the past, people have basically looked at the, the differences and tried to understand if those differences would have significant impact 
just by the identity and the role that that gene plays. So, mm-hmm. for example, in one set of comparisons, there are three proteins that seem to be have a unique amino acid sequence in humans compared to Neanderthals, Denisovans, and even chimps. Okay. And these three proteins, just for the, the sake of completeness, are K1F18A, KNL1, uh, and SPAG5. So that's the last Bio, time. Biochemists are about as original in their names as the astronomers are. <laughs> yeah, so. yep. I, 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 guilty. <laughs> uh, that's the last time I'm going to mention th- those proteins specifically, but all three of them are involved in cell division. Mm-hmm. And they particularly are involved in uh, the, the process, the, uh, the uh, process of cell division where the chromosomes are segregated from each other. A- and uh, these proteins are expressed at very high levels in the developing neocortex. Uh, and so the thought is that this very these may be significant differences that could explain potentially differences in uh, human and Neanderthal cognition. Okay. And, and just for a bit of background, this is kind of a very crude, well, or simplistic presentation of the brain where you see different regions. And uh, there are uh, three regions that people talk about, the ret- reptilian brain, which is instinctual. This is a, the portion of the brain that you see in reptiles. So this would be a human brain would have all this, but they've got these ones that they designate different areas. Well, and then when you look like, for example, reptiles don't have the mammalian portion of the brain or the neocortex. All right. And so they've they've identified these three regions that they think may have some kind of evolutionary significance too. So there's a reptilian brain, the mammalian brain, and then the neocortex, which is where cognition, language, sensory perception, spatial reasoning, things like that take take place. And here's a a cartoon showing kind of the differences in the brains. And what you see is that in, in, in reptiles and in fish, there isn't the mammalian portion of the brain. We don't see the neocortex. In mice, you have a, a um, the mammalian portion of the brain, but there's a very small neocortex. And as you go th- uh, up the, the chain of being, <laughs> you know, like the rhesus monkey and the chimpanzee have increasingly larger neocortexes. And then in humans, we have the, the largest neocortex. Mm-hmm. Uh, the neocortex of, of Neanderthals was also uh, quite large as well, uh, comparable in size. So the question is, are, is there something fundamentally different about our neocortex and that of, of Neanderthals. And uh, because these proteins are involved in cell division, it's probably worth just reviewing the cell cycle, and then we'll talk about the, the, some very interesting experiments that they did. But here's a, a, a diagram showing the cell cycle. And we begin with uh, right after cell division takes place. You have these two daughter cells. And the first say, f- phase of the cell cycle is called G1. It's, it's the growth phase. There's growth mm-hmm. that takes place in the cell. And then the G1 phase gives way to what's called the S phase where, where DNA is synthesized. And so what happens at that point is that the chromosomes become duplicated in the, in the cell. And then uh, after the S1 phase is, is completed, there's another growth phase that leads into uh, the cell division process. And the first phase is called the prophase. Here, the nucleus dissolves and the chromosomes condense into these visible structures. Uh Usually, they're in a diffuse state in the nucleus. The metaphase 
which is what we're going to be talking a lot about here, is the, is the phase where the chromosomes line up in the midplane of the cell. And sometimes it's called the metaphase plane. And then the anaphase is when the chromosomes segregate to the opposite size, sides of the cell po- or the opposite cell poles. Mm-hmm. The telophase is where the nucleus reforms. Then cytokinesis is where the cells divide apart. And then you repeat that process again. And so um, during the course of, uh, of neocortex development, there would be these cells called progenitor cells, neural stem cells, that are undergoing this cell division process. They're proliferating mm. to create the cell mass to build the neocortex. And, and, and so because these three proteins, again, are involved in the cell division and particularly in, in, in the cell separation process, they, were, they thought that maybe uh, these proteins may have pl- play some role in, um, in the quality of the cell, the cell division process. Mm-hmm. And this is where this, the, the whiskey metaphor comes into play because it turns out people have discovered that the longer that a cell stays in the metaphase pl- uh, stage, the more time you give for the chromosomes to align in the midplane. Okay. And, and, and so it just takes time for the, those chromosomes to line up. And you end up having fewer chromosomal separation errors that take place uh, if you have a longer metaphase. If the metaphase... So what, what, do you, what, do you, what would be a chromosomal separation error? Because presumably the chromosomes are not joined right. particularly... Uh, you know, I'm looking at the diagram trying right. to figure out there. It looks like they've kind of got this central point where they're connected right. and then they're splitting from that. What sort of errors well, if, happen? If you don't get things perfectly aligned when the anaphase begins, you, you, what you end up happen, what will end up happening is you won't get uh, two sets of chromosomes in the daughter cell. One, oh, okay. one will have an incomplete set and the other will have extra chromosomes in it. Okay, so it won't necessarily separate completely or you're, you're right. just going to get mixing. Right. In a, okay, gotcha. Right, right. So what these researchers did to, to test this idea was to use um, a, a, an, an interesting technology uh, that involves the creation of brain organoids and, and then gene editing technologies. And this research group actually is, has done a series of experiments along these lines. There's at least three papers published. This is the second. Uh, there's a third paper that was just published that I'm working through right now. And in fact, in the very first episode of Star Cells and God, we talked about work that this team did, okay. uh, you know, uh, assessing the Nova One gene. But the idea here is that you can create these cell cultures called brain organoids, where you take uh, induced pluripotent stem cells, you culture them into in a, in a cell culture into a three-dimensional, uh, again, three-dimensional uh, cell culture. Uh, as opposed to a two-dimensional one on a petri dish, through uh, using a spinning bioreactor mm-hmm. uh, that that uh, you know very very slowly turns, and it takes a few months for these brain organoids to develop. But depending upon the types of growth factors, the culture conditions, you can get these brain organoids to develop into analogs to different regions of the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you and the longer they grow, the, the the greater the proliferation of cell types and the greater structures that you see. So these are very powerful tools that can be used to study aspects of brain development. So what they did in the, their experiments is they actually grew um, uh, brain organoids for chimps and they grew brain organoids for humans in the first set of experiments. 
and the 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 three proteins that are involved in cell division that have a unique amino acid sequence in modern humans, uh, uh, you know, or those proteins have a unique sequence in modern humans, but the chimpanzee version of those genes is the same as in Neanderthals and in Denisovans. Okay. So they grew chimp and human uh, brain organoids, and they compared the uh, the the cell division cycle uh, for what are called. Uh, apical progenitor cells. These are cells that are developing into neurons and macroglia and stuff in the neocortex. And what they saw is that the metaphase was longer uh, in in the in the brain in the cells from the human brain organoids okay. than it was in chimps, and that they were there was there were fewer examples of lagging chromosomes during anaphase. So. So it looks as if you know that particular set of proteins that have again a unique amino acid sequence in humans seem to slow down uh, metaphase, which means that the quality of the cells produced in cell division is going to be higher. So that the quality of the neural cells mm-hmm. in the in the neocortex of humans is, are higher quality cells. They're they're less diseased. They're less defective because of of this this chromosomal separation error. So presumably the the DNA segments that they're using to develop the brain or the cells that have the the the, the stem cells that produce the brain right. organoids have this particular particular or particular segment that has the difference and not a whole lot else that would be different. Yes. Because it seems yeah. like there might be multiple things that play into that. Right. But somehow they've controlled to make sure that this is what's actually affecting the development. Correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then, then the next set of experiments is they humanized um, mice brains. So they took the – they used okay. CRISPR gene editing uh, in, in mouse cells and they were able to – convert the mouse version of those three proteins into the human version. And then okay. they looked at what happened in the brain development for mice. Now, mice have a very small neocortex, but they do have a neocortex. And they saw there that when they humanized those proteins in the, the mouse brain, that the metaphase slowed down and there were fewer lagging chromosomes in anaphase compared to the brain development in wild-type mice. Right. They then did another. Exp- so wh- why would they not? I mean, why could you not go in and do the same sort of experiment where you're doing that with the chimpanzee brain? Is that because you need to actually have the chimpanzees grow to do that? Or yeah, yeah. So these this was done in in in, in mice, actual okay. mice, right? Uh, you okay. Know, uh, so now, not just developing organoids or something. Yeah, like right. Then they then what they did is they took the hum- the the human uh, stem cells that they use to develop human brain organoids and they neanderthalized them okay and they converted those three proteins into the neanderthal version and when they compared the uh, the uh, uh, cell division process in the apical stem cells versus the uh, of of the humans mm-hmm. versus the neanderthalized versions they saw that in the neanderthalized versions that again cell division was more rapid Less time was spent in metaphase, more uh, chromosome lagging errors, okay. or more lagging chromosomes, I should say, in the anaphase. So it looks as if what this these these three amino acid differences are telling us is that the human brain was probably a higher quality brain, where okay. you know it, it was a more robust brain, which could very well translate into differences in in cognition. 
Well, there, there's some of that that makes sense. I mean, you know, you, when you think of the difference between I've got a Model T Ford and a Formula One sports car, you know, at least some of that is you can tolerate a whole lot more, I don't know, slop's not the right word, but a whole lot more imprecision in the way parts are made. You get up to an F1 car right. or a Formula One car or an Indy car, and it's like everything's got to be made to these exacting tolerances. Right. It sounds like that sort of thing is going on here, that, that these sorts of things allow the human brain to do something more, or is it right. that they cause the Well, human I mean, brain? I think the analogy, that was a great analogy, by the way. I think the analogy would be you have a Formula One sports car that is high precision and mm-hmm. one that, that somebody worked on and they were sloppy. Okay. And so the Neanderthal brain would be, correspond to the, the Formula One car where people were sloppy Okay. versus the human brain where people were very careful and you have this high precision machine. So I think that's the, the, what the, the, the appropriate analogy would be. Okay. Does that mean God's being sloppy with it? Well, <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> it, it doesn't mean that. But it, right. Okay, I get what but, you, but, you but I mean, to your, point, yeah. to your point, if, if, the, if that, that creature doesn't, as part of its characteristic, have you know, advanced cognition, then you don't need to have that high precision in, right. in, in the developmental process. You know, now, this study isn't in isolation, but it, it's part of other studies that have shown also significant, uh, or at least amino acids, differences in other proteins that are involved in neural development. Now, there's only been, again, a few studies that have been done with the brain organoids to actually go in and check, is there a real physiological consequence to those differences mm-hmm. in amino acid sequences? But the fact that we do see a number of other proteins that are involved in brain development that show you know, amino acid differences suggests that this isn't just in isolation, that there are genetic differences between humans and Neanderthals that seem to have uh, consequences in terms of brain development and cognition. And as I mentioned in the, the first episode of Star Cells and God, we talked about similar experiments where people were looking at the NOVA1 gene. And this is a gene that is also involved in brain development and that the sequence for the NOVA1 gene is in humans is is unique compared to Neanderthals, Denisovans, and chimps. Mm-hmm. And, and they saw differences in, in brain organoid development by simply modifying or by Neanderthalizing the Nova One gene okay. in human, you know, uh, in human brain organoids, and of course, there's also other anatomical studies that show differences in the brain structure of Neanderthals as well. So the the whole point is this: is that there's a growing body of data that says there really are biological differences between the human brain and the Neanderthal brain. The, si- the sizes are comparable, but the brain shape of the human brain is is distinct that supports advanced cognition. We see differences in key genes that are involved in neurodevelopment. And we're now generating experimental data with these brain organoids that are indicating that those genetic differences are are meaningful. They seem to have consequences in the way the human brain developed compared to Neanderthals. So all of this is is really making a case for human exceptionalism, that, that we can show, you know, that anatomically, developmentally, genetically, that humans seem to have advanced cognition, which means that it supports the idea that we are, we are distinct from, from other creatures. And if we can show that humans are exceptional, that now allows us to make a scientific case for the image of God. 
you know, because the idea is that humans uniquely bear God's image, and because we bear God's image, we can enter uniquely into a special type of relationship mm-hmm. with God. We have certain responsibilities that we can uniquely fulfill with respect to the creation, uh, and and so anything that makes a case for human exceptionalism and distinguishes us as human beings as unique is is something that could be you know appropriated for a, a scientific case for the image of God. So this this study you know s- supports the RTB human origins mm-hmm. model. Uh, which says, again, humans and Neanderthals would be distinct where humans are cognitively superior, but it also, again, builds a case for human exceptionalism. It was fascinating discussion or a fascinating discovery just about, one, how do you, I mean, how do you actually do the experiments that demonstrate that are pretty fascinating to me. Uh, two questions that come up in my mind. One is uh, trying to put this discovery in and integrate it with another discovery that I know you've talked about a lot and I've thought about is where you've talked about how the genetic code is optimized to minimize errors. Yeah. And one of the aspects that comes up in that optimization or that error correction is that substituting uh, letters so that you get different amino acids, very often that'll have a different amino acid that effectively produces either the same protein or protein that does almost identical stuff. It's, I'm just wrestling with this, you know, cause we're talking about three different, three different amino acids here out of a fairly long stretch, I would yeah. presume that I guess I'm, I'm struggling to see how can this error correction, is this just a place where the error correction... I could see the argument being made that this is a place where the error correction wasn't quite good, and that's what allowed humans to develop this new thing. Right. And I, I guess I'm just kind of off the top of my head trying to figure out how to integrate those two. What are your thoughts on how do these two right. discoveries play? Yeah, yeah. well, you know, in, in the code is optimized for error minimization, to, mm-hmm. to, but uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that when you have amino acid substitutions that in some instances they can be biologically significant. So if they are at a, a key, you know, location within the protein, you know, changing one amino acid for another can have mm-hmm. significant, you know, functional consequences. And so these, these, these amino acid differences are, are I mean, the, 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 those three proteins still function in the same way, you know, so they, they're, the function isn't compromised. It's just that those changes wind up slowing down mm-hmm. the, the the metaphase process, right? Uh, and, and, and so it's slowing it down just enough that it ensures that the cell division takes place with a higher degree of fidelity. So it's it's not even like a loss of function. It's just the function is slight is altered si- slightly. And, and the big question is, is that slight alteration significant mm-hmm. or not? And, and, that becomes highly speculative when you're just looking at the sequences or even right, yeah. when you're trying to build protein mo- the mo- when you're trying to model protein structures you know and say well maybe there are some structural differences that might be significant here you're able to go in and do experimental work you know in in a in a fairly interesting model system that that mm-hmm. identifies that this is really different so um, it does seem like the 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 fact that the genetic code is so good at minimizing errors almost makes the fact that there are these errors, if they were errors indeed, or these differences, are not just 
errors, if you will, that there, there's you could make an argument that strikes towards intentionality because there are things that would correct it and get it back to. Right. But these become key to what makes humans different than Neanderthals. That, that strikes. Yeah, me that's a, a really good point, point in terms of intentionality, Jeff. Uh, and and along those lines, I mean, it's interesting that again, the the the, the amino acid sequence in humans is unique compared to not only Neanderthals but also Denisovans mm -hmm. to chimpanzees to mice. So all mammals have basically the same amino acid sequence for these three proteins, right? And you would argue that because of that, it probably means that these are critical proteins that any change in the amino acid sequence mm. is going to be weeded out by natural selection because those changes are going to compromise the function of those proteins, which is if they're playing a role in cell division, that's devastating. Right. And here we have, you know, the, the these differences in these three proteins in humans that seem to have very significant biological consequences. Right. So it's it's a bit eerie or a bit odd mm -hmm. that 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 you would see. It would be one thing if it, it'd be another thing all in, altogether if we saw variation in these proteins throughout, you know throughout the mammalian realm, right. right? But we don't. Gotcha. Right? Yeah, okay. So the other question I had is, you know, you were talking about human exceptionalism, and I, I think of, at least as I've read Scripture, what distinguishes humanity from all the other creatures is that we're, that we're image bearers as a, right. in, in a way that no other creature is. And, you know, given that God created the universe, brought all the new stuff into existence there, that there's this... Uh, nefesh creatures, you know, which has a discussion beyond our, our discussion today. And then there's, you know, humanity is made in God's image. It almost looks like that's a relational capacity we have with God. Does, it's almost like a, you could almost argue that that's not a physical or not need, need not be a physical thing. So how right. important is it or how critical is it to RP, RTB's model that humans have physical exceptionalism as opposed to maybe a spiritual exceptionalism. Does the, yeah. the question make sense? Yeah. Well, I mean, the way I look at it, and, and there, there very well could be theologians that would disagree with me. I mean, there's three different models for the image of God. One mm -hmm. is structuralism, where it actually is that we have distinct capacities that d separate us from other creatures. Uh, one is the relational view, where it's just simply describing our relationship. Okay. The other is called the, the functional view or the representative view, where it's referring to a responsibilities that we've been given. Uh, but people like Bill Craig, and I would agree with this argument, it, make the point that in order to be unique in our capacity to have a relationship with God or to be uniquely suited to serve a functional role in creation, there has to be something fundamentally distinct about us okay. that gives us that capacity. So his argument is that you, know, you, you have to adopt some form of structuralism, even if you had... Mm -hmm. adopt those other one of those other two views or that the structural view kind of umbrellas those other two views that not that they're mutually exclusive right, okay. right? and and so so, so this wouldn't be oh we found evidence for the image of god we found evidence for right. the changes in structure that we would expect if we're created in god's image yes exactly okay. yeah and 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 to me you know we we are physical and we are you know immaterial mm -hmm. Uh, the image of God is part of a, Im, our immaterial makeup, I would, mm -hmm, would right. think. 
Uh, but it, it's not like we're a ghost in the machine. Right. We're, we're, there's an integration. And so you'd expect there should be something, biological systems that correspond to our uniqueness. Right. You know, even even though we would still argue that the image of God is immaterial. So kind of like a computer hardware software analogy that, that to run, you know, the, the software, which would be analogous to the mm-hmm. image of God, you've got to have the hardware that can handle it. Right. Right. Well, and yeah, I think there's a, a common error. I, I've noticed in myself a, a tendency to distinguish the physical and the spiritual, and what I do spiritually affects my physical. What I do physically, mm-hmm. you know, so that this yeah. idea that those are two distinct things, I think, yeah. is you're arguing that they're integrated in some fashion. Yeah. I think that, yeah. that makes sense. So, yeah. any other final thoughts? No, no, no that's that's well, that's I it. it's fascinating to talk about. A, yeah, thanks, Jeff. I, thanks I, for I the find, great questions. <laughs> I find that sitting here listening, I have a wealth of questions that may not be related to your topic because uh, <laughs> you're just even going back in there, the whole process of splitting. It's like, when do you start getting the duplicate copy? Yeah, but that's not really what we were talking <laughs> about today. <laughs> so uh, just to kind of continue the discussion, um, we've had uh, James Webb Space Telescope has been launched mm-hmm. and just phenomenal images and mm-hmm. uh, fascinating discoveries out there. And one thing that I have found is that people have talked about the James Webb. You know, there's been this whole discussion about how the James Webb has gotten rid of the notion that we live in a universe that has a beginning. And so, you know, there's this intuitive sense that the James Webb is weighing in and answering these these big questions. And what I found fascinating about that particular discussion is there were some things that James Webb found that might have fit in in some details better with a different model of the universe. But in a very real sense, the James Webb doesn't even impact the evidence that points towards Big Bang cosmology because, you know, let's talk about the cosmic microwave background radiation, which the James Webb has no capacity to observe. And so there's, uh, you know, it was conflated in what it was able, or the idea of what it was capable of doing didn't match what Mm -hmm. its specifications were. And so I see now we're interested, there's just all longstanding pervasive question of, are we alone in the universe? And we now have this new fascinating Mm -hmm. telescope and I just kind of wanted to take a little bit of time to discuss what is the James Webb, what is it, what can it do, and how does it weigh in on this issue mm-hmm. of is there life? Because the particular discovery I'm going to talk about was the first observation of an exoplanet with the James Webb Space Telescope. Mm. And so just to kind of start, I wanted to give a little bit of background of where our telescope technology has come from, because we are so used to seeing Hubble images and even the James Webb images that we think, I think there may be a distorted sense of where we've come from and how quickly we've gotten there. So if you can take a look at that first image I've got, this is... uh, an image of M100. It's a galaxy, uh, spiral galaxy that has at the, the just looking at the the nucleus of it, the core mm. of it there. And this is from Kitt Peak with a 2.1 meter telescope, which is a really large telescope. Mm. I mean, that's like a six plus foot inch optical or a primary mirror on it. So stand me up and it's taller than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, world-class telescope. And you can see this is what it was. This was kind of the state of the art in the uh, early 90s of what we could do. And if you now go to the next image, this is the Hubble Hubble Space Telescope image of that same region. You can see it's rotated, but other than that, it's basically the same scale. Mm. 
And I want to point out, this was Hubble before the optics were fixed. Mm. And even before the optics were fixed, you can see just how much better mm. the Hubble Space Telescope was. I mean, you could see stars in there. Uh, you know, the colors don't th – that's not a fair comparison between the two. But you can see the just the structure you see there. And now you figure out, okay, we figured out what's wrong with the Hubble. We go up, we put in optics to correct that, and now we get to its design specifications, and it's just like – you know, comparing the bottom image mm -hmm. even to the Hubble pre-service is phenomenal, but you compare it to the Kit Peak image, and it's just like we're not even talking about the same same. Is the Hubble observing in the visible? Hubble primarily observes in the visible. It has the capacity for the ultraviolet, small capacity in the infrared. And okay. so, you know, there's a lot of people that have talked about, oh, how much better James Webb is from the Hubble. And there's you always have to be careful about that discussion because when you look at the James Webb, it's designed to operate in the infrared. Hubble was designed mm. in the visible with ultraviolet and some infrared capabilities. And so they're not exactly doing the same thing. But the reality of it is Hubble, I think, is something on the order of just shy of two meters. I think it's 1.7 meter mirror. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not I'm not gonna stake my reputation on that, but I think it's somewhere in that class, whereas James Webb is on the order of six, seven meter mirror. Mm. So it's, you'd just expect it to be a lot better. And if you go to the next image, you can kind of see Hubble's on the left, James Webb's on the right. You know, bearing in mind that some of that is the difference between visible and ultraviolet, but even for as good as the Hubble was, and there have mm -hmm. been new instruments put on, and so the Hubble is even better than what I was showing there, but still, there's just a clarity, uh, mm -hmm. a resolution, a set of details that you can see with the Webb telescope that you just can't see mm -hmm. with Hubble. And this is uh, an evolution over about 30 years. Yeah, and wow. so you can imagine just what we're capable of doing. Now, the downside of Webb is that it's up in space and it's got a pretty narrow field of view and you can't build too many of those where you can put lots of lots of telescopes down on the ground. So all of these are all necessary, but I just kind of wanted to give a picture mm. of look at the picture on the left compared to the picture on the right and our technology has really advanced. It's phenomenal yeah. what we've been able to accomplish. And even in the midst of that, I wanted to make sure we understood just how impressive the telescope technology was. James Webb still can't find a planet like Earth and take an image of it. And so that's mm. how hard the challenge is to find a Earth-sized planet and actually get information about the planet itself more than just right. its gross features. So something like James Webb can can detect planets that would be like Jupiter size or super Jupiters. But when you're talking about Earth-like planets, that would be re re with respect to smaller, rocky-type planets. Is that what you're saying? It, it's There's a couple of things that play into that. In general, Webb will be able to find Jupiter, Saturn-type objects. If you're looking close enough you can, and the right kind of star, you might get down in the Earth size range. Mm. And so it's not a, oh, it can only find this, but the bulk of what it's going to find is the Jupiter, Neptune, mm. Saturn-type planets. <clears throat> and this is why. Because you ask the question, how do we find a planet around a star? 
And the analogy I will give to illustrate the challenge of that problem is uh, I grew up in the Midwest, and we would go out and collect lightning bugs at night. Love doing that. Uh, you know, little things, bugs that light up, rear ends light up. I mean, who's not fascinated by that? And These little lightning bugs, there's only about a, an hour where you can find them because too early in the day they don't light up because they don't need the light because the sun's out. Too late, and it, you can see the light, but then you can't have any context of where they are. You can't see their bodies afterwards. And so there's this range where you can see them, you can see the light, but it's not so dark that you can't see their bodies and go find them. But they give off a relatively small amount of light. <clears throat> now, contrast that with take those big honking spotlights people shine up into the sky that say here come here shop in my store find this place imagine the biggest one of those that we've made put the lightning bug on the rim of it and say build me a detector that can find the light from the lightning bug in the midst of that that's yeah. the challenge yeah because the light from the star in the visible range is a billion times brighter than the lightning bug the light from the star in the infrared lane range is a million times brighter and so most of our telescope or our exoplanet hunting technologies have been centered around looking for variations in the light from the star because there's a bunch of that light. Yeah. So we will take a telescope and as a planet orbits around the star, it actually causes a gravitational wobble. And so we can find the Doppler shifting in the light from the star. That's the radial velocity technique. That was the first successful large-scale mm -hmm. technique. I always have to preface that statement with the fact that we found a couple of planets around a pulsar, which we could find by variations in the timing of the pulsar. But um, when you're talking about stars that are solar or sun-like in that they're on the main sequence, then radial velocity was the technique we used. Another technique that has been very prolific is if the geometry is lined up as the star or, or as the planet orbits around a star, the planet will pass in front of the face of the star and it will cause the light to dim. Mm. Jupiter planets dim a planet or a, a star's sunlight or the star's light by about a factor of 100, Earth size by about a factor of 10,000 is or one ten thousandth is how much it dims. And so by very, looking around very stable stars, you can mm. find the light from the planet. We have found a f that that's probably the most prolific technique we've used. Uh, in fact, they built an instrument called Kepler that was designed to find Earth-sized Earth planets or Earth-sized planets orbiting sun-like stars, and so it operated for about three years because that's how many times you need to get a, mm -hmm. a reliable detection. And then there was another technique that I'll just point out because it can find a lot of stars, but it doesn't give you much information. Is that if a distance or a distant star, the light from that distant star passes by a star with a planet, then it will get gravitationally lensed and it'll mm -hmm. have a signature to it. But again, notice all of those are looking at light from the star, not from the planet. Right. The, the kind of the holy grail of exoplanet detections is can we build an instrument where we can see the light from the planet? And that's what the Webb telescope is doing. There are other, other mm. telescopes that do this. But the idea, the main idea, or the, the prevailing way of doing it is you put something, it's called a coronagraph, where you put, an, put a block in front of the star to block the light from the star so that you now can see, mm. have sensitivity to detect the light from the planet. Just because you can't build an instrument that has 
sensitivity over a factor of a billion or a factor of a million. It's just almost impossible to do that. Now, the challenge with that technique is that you can block out the light from the star, but any sort of thing you put there, you still get diffraction around the mm. the image, the thing that blocks it. And even at a factor of a million, if only 100 thousandths gets around, the amount of light coming around is still more mm. than the star. So one of the ways this particular technique is sensitive primarily to bright star or bright planets that are very separated from their star. So this particular planet uh, is about, or sorry, this star, and it, it's got a, a very nice descriptive astronomical name. It's HIP two, or 65426, which means it's the 65,426th object found in the Hipparchos satellite, or Hipparchos survey. And it's, I think, if I remember correctly, it's about 350 light years away. So it's, it's in our near vicinity here. And the planet that it found is about 90 astronomical units. So 90 times the distance from the sun to the Earth. Pluto or Neptune is about 40, 39, 40 astronomical units. So this is well beyond the orbits mm -hmm. of Pluto and Neptune if, it were, if this planet were to be put in our solar system. And it's got a mass of a couple times that of Jupiter. So this isn't like, ooh, we're getting close to finding an Earth-like planet. What's cool about this discovery is, one, that it shows that the James Webb Telescope can find mm -hmm. extrasolar planets. Uh, we thought it, we figured it could. We had the, you know, knowing the design characteristics of what it looked like. The fascinating aspect of this discovery was not in that it found the planet, is that in the looking at the planet, the telescope was operating about 10 times better than what we thought it was. Mm. So it's a, it's a way of assessing how well is the instrument working. And if you kind of go to the next uh, slide there, this is, uh, you can see the images of the planet in, you know, this is seven different wave bands. And this is from two microns to 15 microns, which mm. is far into the infrared. And the bottom, the top left image, the purple one there, is actually in a region where we've never found exoplanets in that energy or in that uh, wavelength range. So okay. it's novel discovery there. Uh, in fact, it may be the first two are in that category. But what you see, again, the, the star is a marker of where the star is. You can see all the light's been blocked out, but you still see all of the... The, the the fluctuations and right. the weird weird stuff that's going on there, but you very clearly see uh, HIP 65426B, which is the little blob off to the left mm -hmm. and the bottom there. And again, by seeing how well we, the amount of light we see, the signal to noise, we find that it's working so much better. And they look, they talk about the different regions why uh, the telescope's better, and it's like it's got a the throughput of the telescope's about ten to twenty percent larger than what they thought it would be. So, mm -hmm. you know, they have all the design specs for the James Webb, and lo and behold, it's actually performing beyond its design specs, which mm -hmm. doesn't surprise me that uh, a lot of things that NASA builds do that. Uh, you know, even the Mars rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, they were designed to work for 30 days. They worked for the better part of a decade, you know, mm -hmm. so it was pretty phenomenal. Uh, their pointing stability, I think, actually 
is what allows this sort of uh, resolution yeah. because instead of the telescope bouncing around by six milli arc seconds, it's only bouncing around by one arc sec milli arc second. And so that means that that light is concentrated into a small region instead of being smeared out. And so mm -hmm. the, the fascinating part of all of this is that we are now, we know the capabilities of what the, the web is gonna be able to do and you know, you asked what sorts of planets would it be able to find. The the statement they say is that uh, given the improved performance, it will be possible to detect Uranus and Neptune massed objects beyond 100 to 200 astronomical units. So again, we're not talking solar system like mm -hmm. planets, but it's it's incredibly impressive and a little bit discouraging at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> and even the, they say that they can get Saturn-sized objects um, down to about 10 astronomical units. And if you were to look at Alpha Centauri, which is one of the closest stars, it might be possible to push the limits down to where they can get to five times the Earth radius uh, for mm. companions that are 0.5 to 2.5 astronomical units. So mm. you can see we're kind of getting yeah. down to where we can get that, to where we're actually measuring the light. And the reason why that's important, why we want to measure the light and what Webb brings to this that other telescopes don't, is that when you can measure the light, you now know what is the actual temperature of the planet. What right. does its atmosphere look like? What are What's the composition? You can start to do science on the planet instead of just saying, well, it's this massive. So you could generate spectral information from the, the light then? In principle, yes. Now, I don't, I'm not entirely sure whether it has that technology. You can see here, there's even some spectral information here because these are different wave bands. Right. Oh, yeah, right. It's just really wide wave bands. So you're right. not going to be able to say, okay, let's look for the hydrogen line of such and such. It doesn't have that sort of resolution. But, yeah, we're doing spectral right. spectroscopy on light from the planet itself, which is what you need to be able to assess whether this thing is really habitable because right. as much as Earth is a certain size – it's what's going on in the atmosphere is driving a right. whole lot of what makes Earth habitable. Right. So hopefully you'd see something that is water or methane or, you know, uh, some m ammonia, oxygen, some kind of bands that would suggest the presence of those molecules then, right? Those sorts of things you, you also might expect to see uh, if there was a – like if you were observing Earth, there's changes in the amount of light output from the planet or uh, from Earth because of the amount of cloud cover, because there's there's oceans and ice covered. And so if you had something which was like ice on one side, water on the other side, you might detect the variability in the light output. These are the sorts of things you can start doing mm -hmm. when you're measuring the light from the planet itself, right. not just how the planet affects the starlight. So. Right. It's exciting and fascinating, and before we can detect Earth-like planets around sun-like stars, we still have to wait for another couple of telescopes. <laughs> and for scale, the James Webb was proposed no earlier than about – or no later than about 1996. Mm. So we're 25 years later before we're starting to get the output from it. And so – you know, like I said, I, I don't want to be, it's like, oh, wow, you know, science can't do anything. This is just cool stuff. I mean, it's yeah. so impressive how the technology has advanced. And it's just a, a statement of how difficult the question is of mm -hmm. assessing, are there planets capable of hosting life? Right. And we need to just bear that in mind when we're talking about, oh, we found the latest habitable planet. 
we really don't we don't have the technology to get outside of does it have the capacity to have the right temperature right we don't even know what the right whether it has that temperature or not so it's yeah. it's a pretty challenging problem but a fun problem to attack yeah so in terms of you know you know part of the bread and butter at reasons to believe is this is the idea that you know earth is is unique our solar system is unique in terms of its habitability. Our sun is unique. Uh, you know, in other words, we don't really have the, the technology to really sufficiently probe that question experimentally. So we can do, you know, back of the envelope calculations or speculate on the uniqueness of the earth from kind of counterfactual analyses or theoretical analyses. But what we really are saying is we don't have the experimental capacity to robustly go after that question, which means everybody should exercise some measure of humility, right? Yes, yes. That, no, that, that's, and I would say it's, it's a little, you can state it a little bit more, not definitively, or there is more data to weigh in. What we don't have is the capacity to go out and say, oh, here are these 5,000 planets. We know what their characteristics are, anything more than their mass and their orbital parameters. What we do have in our solar system is two planets that we would put in the habitable category beyond Earth, Venus and Mars. And so mm. I think we get a whole lot more information about what sort of variability and things to look for by looking at those planets. We see that both Mars and Venus started out with an abundance of water, and yet Earth is the only one of the three, four and a half billion years later that has any significant water on it. So. We've got tools here to get a lot of details that really do illustrate the complex interactions of geophysics and atmospheric physics and biological physics and astronomical physics that are required to make a planet habitable. So I think there are things we can do to weigh in there, but we just need to have that caution when we're talking about, oh, we found a planet around an M dwarf. Well, we have to extrapolate from what we have here and recognize that there's there's kind of two schools of approach. One is, well, if we can get water, there's going to be life. And so all we need is this minimal set of characteristics to get water. That may actually be much harder than what we think. That's what kind of Venus and Mars tell us. Right. But even beyond that, just because you get water doesn't mean that water is going to stick around or the water is going to have the necessary components or the life can originate because there's too much ultraviolet. Not, I mean, there's all these other things at play. Right. And so let's just be a little cautious about what we're declaring to be mm. based on observations around mm -hmm. things that we just don't right. know. I mean, it's only been 25 years, 25, a little over 25 years that we are right. now convinced that there are planets outside our solar system. But then by the same token, too, we want to be a bit cautious saying, well, we found all these exoplanets, but yet none of them meet the capacities for life. So therefore, Earth is unique. Exactly. We, we want to be, you know, so it's caution on um, from both perspectives. Exactly. From and both and perspectives. One, of the, one of the things when I'm talking about this, I almost always will show a slide. It'll list all the exoplanets we found so far. And then I'll go put the planets out of our solar system on that graph. And what you'll find is that Jupiter fits in the class of, oh, we found Jupiter-sized planets that are Earth's Earth, similar to Jupiter mm -hmm. in our solar system. Saturn just barely sits on the edge. Uranus, Neptune, Mercury, Earth, Venus are all down in this region where we just have no capacity to observe. 
And so we do need to be aware there's a selection effect in everything we found. Yeah. Doesn't mean you can't say anything, but I think, as you just said, we need to be cautious yeah. about what we say. Yeah. Well, thanks, Buzz. Appreciate our discussion today. And I want to thank you for joining us also today on Star Cells and God and want to encourage you to join the discussion in the comments below. Remember to like this video and to subscribe for more content. New episodes of Star Cells and God release each Thursday and are available here on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Be sure to share this video with a friend and remember, the more we know about science, the more we have reasons to believe.